Um, I want to start by reading Psalm 1. Um, one of the, the things that's always good to do is to remember, um, remember Scripture, remember the trajectory Scripture sets us on, and remember the difference that Scripture itself makes between God's truth and the opinions and the wisdom of humanity, okay? Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law, the instruction of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so true blessing from God comes not by spending your time meditating on ungodly thoughts, ungodly worldviews, ungodly ideas and perspectives. Uh, true blessing from God comes in meditating on His Word and letting His Word shape who we are, how we think, how we feel, how we view the world, how we view people, how we respond to people. God's Word is the only inspired, inerrant, infallible repository of truth that we have. It is God's truth. And because it is from God, it is uniquely capable of equipping us to live for God, to follow Christ, to live in this world, to engage people where they are. Um, and so let's commit ourselves, in light of all that we're going to look at, to delight ourselves in God's Word and to meditate on God's Word day and night. That is the path of true blessing. That is the path of being truly fruitful for God. We don't want to find ourselves um, walking in wicked counsel, um, however flowery and good it may sound on the surface. Uh, we don't want to stand in the way of sinners. We don't want to sit in the seat of scoffers. Um, and yielding ourselves to the, to the worldly ways of thinking that we're considering at first might seem like it's very liberating, it's very freeing, but in the end we will find ourselves right here in that seat of scoffing, mocking the very God that we once set out to defend. And we don't want to see that happen. So as we go into that, keep that in mind. Let's delight in God's Word, let's meditate on God's Word, and let's determine not to walk in the counsel of ungodly people. Um, all right, I want to pick back up where we were last week. We were uh, talking about uh, folks in the church who have been drinking in this critical race theory, this, this social justice mindset, this, this impetus that says if you're going to truly show that you're right with God, then you're going to pursue justice in the way that we say you need to pursue justice, and you're going to pursue all the things that we say you need to pursue. Um, I've got another quote here. This is not one I originally had down. Um, and you know, I don't get any joy out of naming people, um, but with something like this, we need sometimes to have names so that when we encounter articles or books or, or um, podcasts, um, we have something that, that clicks in our minds to say, okay, I might need to be careful because of who I'm listening to, okay? Um, this is from a guy named Dottie Lewis. He's the vice president for the Sin Network with the North American Mission Board, and he's a pastor of a church in Atlanta. Um, this is a very recent thing that he was, he was talking about. He said this, the gospel is not good news without spiritual redemption and restoration. You know, and we'd say, okay, amen to that. Spiritual redemption, spiritual restoration, but then he goes on, he says, but the gospel is also not good news without emotional, economic, and social restoration as well. The good news of the kingdom is that God is establishing a new order where all things, spiritual, emotional, economic, and social, are restored to their original sinless design. And so basically what he's saying is through social justice, through this, this addition to the gospel, we can almost create heaven on earth. We can recreate the Garden of Eden here on earth if we just devote ourselves to these principles and the, the, the path that we are saying we need to go after. And remember, we looked last week, like you can't, you can't get this from just the gospel itself. You have to change the nature of the gospel from being you, you know, a good news message of how sinful people are made right with God. And you have to add, well, here's the works that we have to do 
also um, in order to fully be justified, in order to fully be saved. Um, and again, like I don't think they see their inconsistency on this. But Lewis, just like Eric Mason, just like um, Jarvis, Jarvis Williams, Williams, yeah, like they're they're adding something to the gospel. Um, when Jesus said Mark 1, 14 and fifteen. You know, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. What did he say? Go do social justice. Go feed the poor. Go fix the, the wrong sinful structures of society. He said, no, repent and believe the gospel. Because it's a message that calls for us to personally respond in faith and trust in Jesus because he's the only one who can make us right with God. That's the gospel. It is a vertical thing between us and God. Does it lead to life changes in the world. Absolutely it does. Absolutely it does. If we have been made right with God, God's going to start working in us to produce a new way of life. We're going to have new desires. We're going to have new loves. People that we once might have been at enmity with, we'll want to reconcile that as much as possible. We'll want to be upright in our business dealings. We'll want to, you know, seek the good of those around us. Like all of that is legit pursuits for Christians, but it comes out of the gospel and is not a part of the gospel. See, the danger is when you start taking things that flow out of the gospel and start putting them into the gospel, you change the gospel. And that's the danger here. We finished last week um, in Galatians chapter two, you know, talking about the Judaizers who came into the churches in Galatia and they were basically saying, yeah, faith in Jesus is important. You got to believe Jesus is the Messiah, but you also have to be circumcised. You also have to keep the law of Moses. Um, and so they're not saying faith in Christ is unimportant, but they're saying you've got to do this in addition as well. So yes, faith in Christ plus these external works that you need to do. That's the gospel. That's Christianity. And if you only focus on faith in Jesus, they'd say you have an incomplete gospel. And that is the very same language that we're hearing with a lot of these folks in the social justice movement, critical race theory. We have an incomplete gospel, they say, <clears throat> because we only focus on justification by faith in Christ alone. Um, and they say, no, you've got to add this gospel work to things in order to truly have the gospel. Can I just jump in there? So I think we're all in this room, I hope we all agree on this, that, that obviously salvation, our justification is by faith alone, not by any of our works. So we're going we're gonna to have disagreement if someone tries to change that part, which is absolutely essential. But we're also going to disagree with the transformation of life that they're looking for. And this is very important too. So it's, it's not as though we all agree on the transformation and what it should look like. We just, they're putting it in the wrong place. Well, that, that's part of the problem. But we actually disagree on what the transformation should look like. So just, just mention, I just want to mention three terms that you're going to hear uh, all the time today about what this transformation should look like, whether in the evangelical circle or especially in the secular world. You've all heard these words repeatedly. The, the, the three words, the acronym is DIE, D-I-E, okay? <laughs> Diversity, inclusion, and equity. You guys have heard these words. You hear them all the time. If you have a regular sort of secular job, you probably have diversity training or, or equity training or uh, something like that. You might have inclusive, uh, inclusiveness seminars and things like that. Well, I just want to mention here how in some ways those terms can be used in an okay way and in some ways not. So I would like to argue that a lot of words that you're hearing like justice is being redefined. Mm -hmm. uh, equity is being used in a, in a new way. Diversity is being used in a new way and so is inclusion. So let me just mention these three. Diversity. When people today talk about the need for diversity, they sound like what they're saying is it would be nice to have people of different ethnic backgrounds together. Now, we're all for that. At, 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 before the throne of Christ, people of every tribe and tongue and people and nation are singing praises to Jesus. So we are all for that kind of diversity. There's nothing wrong with that. That is actually what Christ purchased on the cross, is that in heaven, there is a total diversity of people from every nation worshiping Him in their own languages. Nothing we're saying tonight is opposed to that. What we're opposed to is what, what people today mean by diversity is they mean this. They mean people of different ethnicities who believe critical theory need to all be together in the same workspace. In other words, if Vody Bauckham, and I, I've got extra copies, as you, I, just, I just walk around with them now at this point with the extra copies, but I've got extra copies of fault lines. Vody Bauckham is an African-American, and he does not believe critical theory. This book is a strong criticism of the critical theory approach to things, critical race theory. Vody would not be considered a diverse voice because he doesn't buy the narrative. So although he has a diverse skin color, he would not be considered part of the new diversity because the new diversity does not let people like Vody in the door because they, they will not allow you to come in if you don't 
submit to critical theory. And so an African-American who doesn't believe in critical theory is not considered the kind of diversity that's being looked for. We're looking for uh, so-called minority voices, whatever they may define as a minoritized group, which would include LGBT. And they would say, you need to be bringing the authentic voice of your perspective. The, the authentic black experience, the authentic Latino experience, the, the, the authentic, authentic transgender experience, the, tra the authentic uh, homosexual uh, experience. And if you are not coming from the cr critical theory perspective, your voice does not count. In fact, people will say things like this. If you're an African-American who rejects critical theory, they will say you have internalized racism. What this means is, as an African-American, you have so absorbed the white supremacist worldview that you actually think that you're thinking for yourself when really you're just t talking, you're just speaking white supremacist talking points back, either to try to please white people and get on their good side. This is, these are actual arguments. I'm not making this up. Either to please white people and get on their good side because they can advance you because they have power. That's the argument. Or because you just don't even know that what you're saying is actually deeply white supremacist and racist. You're, you're innocent. You don't know that, but you're speaking that way. And on it goes. So there is an authentic black experience, an authentic, et cetera, experience, and if you're not speaking from that perspective, you don't count as being part of diversity. Now, do you see the problem with that kind of diversity? Diversity, that's not really diversity in the way that they are, they're trying to argue. Number two, the word inclusion. Inclusion is a massive term today, and inclusion talks about, you know, making a, quote, a safe, inclusive environment. Have y'all heard this language, safe, inclusive environment? What that means is not simply that you should not be mean, or that you should not be a jerk, or that you should be kind, which we all agree with, that you should be those things. You should hold the truth with, with humility, and you should speak the truth in love. We all, okay, that's not, what they're, that's not what they're saying. They're saying anything in an environment, a workspace, church, seminary, wherever, wherever you are, anything that happens that could be perceived by anyone as offending any minoritized group, so anything that could be accidentally taken as being a sexist, racist, homophobic statement or something like that be, be, is, is no longer inclusion. And just a, a, a new example, I just heard about this recently. This is, I mean, a lot of these examples, you, it's hard to believe these are real. But uh, now people who sell houses are no longer, they're trying to no longer refer to the main bedroom as the master bedroom because that could be taken by some as a reference to slavery. Well, master bedrooms were not named that with anything in relationship to slavery whatsoever. And yet, could someone potentially, possibly see that as a reference back to slavery, and it could, it could trigger certain kinds of oppressive feelings or thoughts, and so therefore you're not allowed to say that. Now, now okay, in a certain level, there's, there's, there's a degree, there's, there's always a kernel, a tiny kernel of truth. Of course we should be sensitive to what other people have experienced, and we should not be unnecessarily a jerk to someone. Obviously that is true. But what we're talking about here is enforced speech dictates. That's what we're talking about. Because now, anything that could ever be perceived by anyone as potentially offensive to any minoritized group, that can no longer be said. In fact, if you say it, that's a microaggression. It's even a form of perhaps hate speech. And so now we've got to force by law or force by authority that you can no longer use this ever-growing expansion of vocabulary terms, even when those are completely innocent and not in any way meant to hurt or harm anyone at all. But because there's a potential uh, possibility of that offending someone, it can no longer be used as a microaggression. Number three is equity. Now, you sa it sounds good. I mean, we want to treat people equally. But, but, you know, equity is not the same as equality. Equality is, you know, equal treatment under just law, right? That's equality. Equal treatment under just law. That's biblical. You don't show favoritism, the Bible says, to the poor, and you don't show favoritism to the rich. You don't say, okay, this person was poor when they committed this murder, and so therefore we're going to be very lenient because they were poor. Or this person's rich and they can pay me off and bribe me, so I'm going to be lenient to that murderer because they're rich. Of course not. Equal treatment under just law would be equality. But equity is not talking about equal treatment under just law. Equity is about forcing outcomes to be forced to be equal. So that you're, you're really forcing equal outcomes, e equity. For, now, think about where equity leads you in the history of the world. You have socialism. And it's extreme version. You have what? With a C. Communism, right? Where you're saying, we're going to force everything to end up exactly equal. And if, if the equal, enough, just thinking with common sense. In school, some students work harder than others. Can you imagine some students are lazy? I was in that category far too often in high school, middle school. Some work really, really hard. Can you imagine at the end of every test, your teacher forcing equal outcomes for grades? Can you imagine what that would do? 
We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna force equal outcomes. We're going to have equity. We're going to have everyone in the exact same final spot. And the, the answer is that actually becomes a form of injustice. So, so we need to be very careful. When you hear diversity, inclusion, equity, you need to start asking a lot of questions about what that person means by those terms. Because don't just assume that because they sound positive. Pro-choice sounds positive. A lot of these terms, social justice sounds positive, critical social justice, they sound positive, but we need to dig below the surface and start asking questions about what do you really mean by equity? Sounds good at first, but what do you mean by that? And when you hear it's forced equal outcomes in many instances, then we have a problem on our hand. Yeah, um, going off of some of that, like you mentioned, uh, the diversity thing and the lack of true representation of, of voices, like a lack of true diversity um, you know, you guys, some of y'all might know of the Just Thinking podcast, Virgil Walker, Daryl Harrison. If you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend it. Um, two black brothers are rock solid, sharp. Um, they've dealt with a lot of this, um, but they've been called by other black people, mm-hmm. Uncle Tom's, Coons, all kinds of thing like that, things like that, because they're not going with the social justice narrative, because they're thinking differently. Um, you know, I think as Harrison said, just thinking for myself, well, that's the one thing you can't do when it comes to social justice. You can't be an independent thinker. Um, independent thinking is dangerous. Um, it gets into the group think of, you know, the Marxist categories of identity where you're, you know, you aren't so much an individual, you're more part of a group. And if you depart from the group, you're harming the group. And therefore, how dare you say anything on your own? You only go with what the group says. So, I mean, you've seen it with, with stuff like that and other, other black um, believers and just in society, people, black individuals who don't go with the prevailing narrative, they get some of the harshest treatment from other black people because they're not going along with it. Um, and also, you know, think of um, the, the E, the equity. Was it? I, I can't remember where this was. There's a, a school system here in the U.S. Um, that is doing away with its AP program because it favors white people over people of color and there's not enough fair representation according to that. And so they're just scrapping the program altogether because they see it as oppressive and it's holding others down and it's not fair. Um, So that's how this starts to work itself out um, in in tangible ways um, in everyday everyday life. Um, Okay, um, thinking about social justice, thinking about um, this issue, we, we have to mention uh, Tim Keller. Um, and I want to say at the outset, Tim Keller has done a lot of good. Um, and on certain things, if you read him, you will amen. You will say this is spot on. Um, and he said it well. But on a lot of other things, he's not so reliable. And again, it's one of those things ten, eight years ago, seven years ago, you wouldn't have known this. I mean, Keller, when I first encountered him, he was a little different the way he handled things. Um, so, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't like the, I didn't dislike him. I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't against him or anything. It's just, he was different how he approached a few things, but I was like, Hey, you know, he's gospel coalition, all this, like everybody recommends him. Um, and at the time I didn't hear, you know, stuff where you'd say, Oh, wow, that, that really gives us pause. But as the social justice stuff has come out, um, the race issues in our country, like, it's amazing how God is using this to show where people's true allegiances are in terms of authority, in terms of how they interpret things, in terms of how they work through things. Um, so I've got some quotes that I want to read from this. Um, as you're finding that quote, I just yeah. want to quickly say, just if you, this is no vendetta, like some personal thing. Yeah. I have been tremendously helped and impacted by Keller's ministry. My wife was converted reading this book right here, his book, The Reason for God. So th- this is not like some sort of personal angst we have against yeah. him. Th- this is just in the last, especially five or six years, there have been an increasing number of things on this topic that we think, I don't think the way he's approaching this is, is where it should be. And it's, it's, a, it's a growing concern, I think, as time goes on. Yeah. Um, and Keller matters because Keller's influential. He's very influential. Um, and when we, we started out last week looking at, you know, traditional Marxism leading to critical theory and stuff like that, and why we have to go back to the categories of oppressor and oppressed. Um, and another thing we need to bring out before we read this is in that there's this thing called redistribution of wealth, meaning um, wherever the inequity is, wherever the, the disparity is, wherever it's unequal, you've got to equal it out. You're redistributing the resources um, so that everybody has the same um, so keep that in mind uh, when we read, read this. This is Keller in the end of his book, The Reason for God. 
He says, another way to look at the Christian life, however, is to see it from the perspective of the final restoration. The world and our hearts are broken. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was an infinitely costly rescue operation. If we just stopped right there, that would be awesome. Like that is spot on, well said. But let's, let's read the sentence in its fullness. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was an infinitely costly rescue operation to restore justice to the oppressed and marginalized, physical wholeness to the diseased and dying, community to the isolated and lonely, and spiritual joy and connection to those alienated from God. So the, what we keep at the heart of the gospel, the, the reconnecting people to God becomes one of many things that the gospel ultimately is about. But he goes on. To be a Christian today is to become part of that same operation with the expectation of suffering and hardship and the joyful assurance of eventual success. The story of the gospel makes sense of moral obligation and our belief in the reality of justice. So Christians, and hear this, Christians can do restorative and redistributive justice wherever they can. That one little word, redistributive, comes from somewhere. That's not just let's look at the the Bible and apply that. You don't get that term in the Bible. You get that term from classical Marxism, cultural Marxism, whatever, when it's talking about because you've got this, this racist, oppressive system, some people have more, some have less. That's sinful for anyone to have more than someone else. And so because it's sinful as Christians, we need to be committed to trying to, to equal that back out, to redistribute whatever the Moors have and spread it out amongst those who don't have as much. Which I, I immediately think of the parable of the talents. Remember, talent wasn't like I'm good at like this musical instrument, talent was like a measurement of money, but it, the parable of the talents, not everyone has the same amount of talents, remember? And this is just obviously true. There are some things that some of us are better at than others. There's some things that, you know, that's obviously true. And so, Jesus tells about, you know, 10 talents, five talents, one talent, or however the exact numbers are. But the point there is you take what the Lord has graciously given you, and with all that you have, with God's grace, you, you work and, and you see that blossom and develop and grow to its maximum capacity. And if God's given you five, then by God's grace, see if you can get 10. If God's given you 10, that's amazing. See if you can get 20. If God's given you one, don't go bury it, right? Uh, try to make two out of the one. And so the, some of us are going to be, some, some are more athletic than others. Some are going to be more uh, better at business naturally than others. Some are going to be more intellectual than others. Some are going to be more, you know, better at this or that than others. That's just the way the world is. And we all complement each other by our diverse gifts, by our diverse abilities in the church. Mm -hmm. The body of Christ is great in that way. But we need to be careful of a kind of uh, an envy or a jealousy that can come in and say, well, wait, God gave Greg five talents. I only have one in this area. I could be mad at God. I could be mad at who knows who. I could be mad at you. I could be jealous over you or something. That, that's not. The, we need to be grateful for what the Lord has given us and maximize it to the best of our ability with God's grace as our help. Yeah. yeah. All right. I've got, got some more quotes here. Um, and again, this is showing, and again, I, I don't think Keller's setting out to be inconsistent. Um, none of us do, if we're going to be honest. None of us want to be inconsistent. We want to be as consistent as we can be in everything we believe. Um, but on this, listen, he says, is God on the side of the poor? He says, this emphasis in the Bible has led some, like Latin American theologian Gustavo Gutierrez, to speak of God's preferential option for the poor. At first glance, this seems to be wrong, especially in light of the passages in the Mosaic Law that warn against giving any preference to rich or poor. <coughs> he says, yet the Bible says that God is the defender of the poor and never says he's the defender of the rich. And while some texts call for justice for members of the well-off classes as well, the calls to render justice to the poor outnumber such passages by 100 to 1. Now, if you just take Keller's word for it, you'll think Gustavo Gutierrez is just, you know, he's a theologian in Latin America. But what Keller's not letting you know is that Gutierrez is one of the founders of liberation theology, which is heresy. It is a false teaching which re recasts the Christian gospel not in terms of salvation from sin, but salvation from economic and cultural oppression. The gospel is about setting you free from worldly oppressors who have kept you down. And so hence liberation, Jesus came to set the oppressed peoples free from their earthly oppression. That's liberation theology, and it is Christianity married to Marxism. Like there's a lot we could say on that. I'm not going to go into that right now. Um, but it is, it is Christianity married to Marxism. Um, Keller quotes favorably this guy. Why? Because he's assuming some of these things are true, at least 
um, in some way. And so, again, we, we have to be careful about bringing in ungodly, unbiblical ideologies, ways of thinking, and then just accepting it as how we need to read the Bible. Um, let me go on here. And they, see, this is, this is where it gets to. We all know 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you have your Bible, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And this is one of those things when you, when, when you read somebody, read carefully. Read carefully. And if something feels a little off, we're in a day and age when we just can't give the benefit of the doubt like we used to. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's begin reading. Let me see if I can get there first. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's begin reading in verse 8. It says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. <clears throat> so now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For the readiness, if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that, I'm losing my place here, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need. Um, and let's just stop there. Um, where is it at further in here? I know I'm, I'm missing it. Verse 15. Verse 15. Or no. 14 and 15. Um, I'm not going to be able to find it now that I'm trying to look for it. But I mean, this is the place where Paul talks about God loves a what? A cheerful giver. Can you find that in there? I know it's yeah, in there. Cheerful givers in nine, I believe. Oh, is it nine? Six. Thank you. I, anyway, seven. so we're, we're talking here about, um, about the, the churches giving to the churches in Jerusalem. You know, they're in need. Um, Jerusalem, they're going through famine, whatever. They, the, Paul's gathering resources and all of that. And we come to eight and nine, and we know, we know God loves a cheerful giver, meaning it's, it's voluntary. It's something we want to do. It's not required. God's not saying you have to do this as a matter of your faithful obedience to show that you love Jesus. Um, and this is what Keller says. He says, though the laws of gathering manna in the wilderness are obviously not applicable today, in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul can use them and listen to this, to require economic sharing and radical generosity among Christians. Just as Israel was a community of justice, so the church is to reflect these same concerns for the poor. But see, here's the thing. <clears throat> Who are the poor that the church is caring for here? It's not the societal poor, it's the church. It's talking about God's people first. And so, again, you're this smuggling in ideas that aren't biblical, but then it sounds so biblical um, because, hey, you know, we want to care for the poor. We, we realize they can be, you know, uh, taken advantage of. And so we, <clears throat> excuse me, we got to care for them. And he slides this word require in, require economic sharing. That's not a biblical phrase. That's a Marxist phrase, requiring economic sharing. You have more, therefore you are unjust if you don't give your extra to people who don't have I have a friend uh, in the area who teaches a lot of UGA students in his church setting, and he was teaching in a chapter in the book of Acts. In fact, we just went through it in Acts chapter 4 about the people selling a lot of their goods and, and, and giving to one another as they had need. And he was teaching on this, and he, he had an open text message where if you have a question in the room, you can text right in. And so he said he got, according to what he told me, he said he got like eight questions right away. And According to what he was saying, I don't know if he was exaggerating, but he said pretty much all the first eight questions were saying, isn't this the Bible supporting socialism? This is like UGA students, last semester, about over 100 of them in the room, and they're, when they hear these generosity passages, the first thing they think of is socialism. But the difference is, like you're saying, Greg, socialism is a government forced with a gun backing that, a government forced redistribution of wealth. 
What the Bible has here is a free generosity that is prompted by the gospel and done out of the generosity and the cheerfulness of your heart, an overabundance of joy. Paul says, I'm not going to command you. I'm going to ask you to show by the earnestness of your love that this is genuine. So, to see a, a genuine radical generosity is biblical, but a forced redistribution, that's where you're in a completely different thing. And there's a subtle thing there because I think people oftentimes miss the connection of yeah. how different those two things are. Yeah, they do. Um, and so, again, take basic biblical principles and push back against some of these statements. Um, don't let it, let it overcome you. Um, all right, I'm going to read one more thing from Keller, and then we can, um, we can move on. Like I said, there's, there's a lot we could look at uh, with him. Um, this is going from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 15. If you want to turn there, again, we need to look at texts um, so that we can combat all of this. Um, and then we got some other places to go. Deuteronomy chapter 15. Um, we're going to read verses... We'll do 7 through 11. Mark, will you read that? Yes, Deuteronomy 15, 7. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for, uh, for this... Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Okay, verse 11, there will never cease to be poor in your land. That's pretty clear, right? Now, let's go back up to verse 4 and see Keller catches something <coughs> here, <coughs> but we got to be wise. He says, but there will be no poor among you for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you'll strictly obey the voice of the Lord. I'm careful to do all this. So Keller looks at this and says, you know, if we followed verse four, then this is what he says. Um, so there should be no poor among you. God's concern for the poor is so strong that he gave Israel a host of laws that if practiced would have virtually eliminated any permanent underclass. And so, is God contradicting himself here? No, God doesn't contradict himself. God understands what he's saying. So in verse 4, when he's talking about um, there will be no poor among you, um, what is he talking about? Well, when you see issues that you can deal with, deal with them. Help alleviate it where you can, when you can. But he's also going back to verse 11 when he says there will always, um, there will never cease to be poor in the land. And that's why he says, therefore, open wide your hand. So verse 4 is not saying poverty will be utterly and permanently eliminated. It's saying do your part in order to help those in need around you. Why? Because there's always going to be poor. What did Jesus say? He said you'll always have the poor among you. And so there is no program from Scripture Society. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Allergies are getting me. Man, it's killing me this year. Um, there is no program that's going to eliminate poverty. We can alleviate it when we can't permanently get rid of it. So I'm going to stop with Keller on that. Um, there's more we can say. Do you got something you wanted to go somewhere? Just an another passage that's often familiar. Just, it, it, you can turn there real quick. Matthew 25, just mentioning a few that are often used. In Matthew 25, Jesus describes the last judgment. And as you're turning there, you may remember, uh, Jesus says, talks about the sheep and the goats. And he says, um, verse, this is Matthew 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared, be, uh, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you in, a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to, the, to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Well, the phrase, the least of these my brothers, in my experience, is almost universally left out of this <coughs> passage. So usually what this is taken, at, taken to be is, if the church is not basically eliminating the situations described here, that if, Christian, if every Christian does not go and, and do a prison ministry, or if they don't go and basically try to completely overturn poverty in every imaginable way, then they are guilty in some horrific way, and they may not even be saved. 
what Jesus is saying here is actually much more normal, perhaps, than you might think. He's, he's saying, if you've, did, if you've done this to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And you see what Jesus is saying? If you, have a, if you have a believer who's a member of your church who goes to jail for their faith, back then they wouldn't even feed you in jail, so they're going to starve, and we don't care enough to go visit them, we don't care enough to go take them a meal, we don't care enough to go visit them and pray with them when a member of our church is in prison, then Jesus would say, I never knew you. I mean, you're, you're not a genuine believer. If you will not go down the street and visit a fellow member, a brother in Christ who's in prison, or if a fellow member is hungry and they don't have enough food to eat, a member of our church, and we don't care enough to take care of them, uh, we've, denied our, we've denied our faith. Paul says we're worse than an unbeliever if we don't care for our own. And, and similarly, if there is someone among us that uh, needs clothes or is, who is horribly sick, and we don't visit them, help them, we do nothing to alleviate the situation when we have the means, and they're a member of our church, a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ, Jesus will say, then you didn't do it for me. And on the last day, you will be proven not to be a believer if you don't care for the brothers and sisters you have in Christ. But often, social justice type people, uh, and these are usually more on the fringe of evangelicalism, will eliminate the least of these my brothers phrase and take this as a general social justice statement that, that, that is that if Christians don't alleviate all needs everywhere all the time and visit every prison, then they denied their faith, which is actually, if you read it carefully, it's very important that we read it carefully because Jesus means something very specific, and it's not what often it's taken to mean. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Again, let the text speak. Let the text um, dictate it. Okay, we've got some other texts I want to look at. Um, <clears throat> let's look at Exodus chapter 20. This is the Ten Commandments, um, you know, the codification of God's law. <clears throat> and, um, you know, this is, this is the basic to morality. Like, you know, God's law is summed up in some ways in this, we could say, and what God has to say here. You know, you just look starting Exodus 20, verse uh, 15. says, you shall not steal, meaning it's not right to take something from someone else that is theirs and not yours. Um, he says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, meaning, um, you know, think courtroom, legal, whatever in society, don't ruin your neighbor's reputation. Slander uh, carries terrible, big penalties in the Old Testament. And in verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything else that is your neighbor's. And what this is doing here <coughs> is getting at um, how we view other people. Um, we need to be content with what God has given us. Why do we steal? It's because we don't have something and we want it. Somebody else has it, so we're going to take it, um, whether it's right or not. That's why stealing happens at a root level. Bearing false witness means you want to ruin the reputation of someone. Um, not coveting, not desiring uh, what God has not given you. Um, is what coveting is talking about. This strong urging to say, somebody else has it. I feel like I should have it. Therefore, they, sh they should give it to me. I should be able to partake of what other people have. What all of this, um, this social justice stuff does is it creates the very desires that God says are wrong. It says, um, you know, don't bear false witness against your neighbor, meaning don't ruin their reputation um, if, you know, so they're being accused of something and it's false, don't say they actually did something that they didn't do. Don't ruin their reputation. These, this blanket statements of everything is racist. You're a racist whether you intend it or not, simply because of your skin color, simply because of the system you live in. That is actually going against this commandment not to bear false witness against your neighbor because it's saying you are guilty of a sin and an evil um, and it's besmirching you, it's ruining your reputation um, according to something that's actually not in reality. It doesn't exist. You're not a racist simply because of your skin color. And I hope we see what's wrong about that. That was the very thing that was the problem in this country before. We looked, you know, white people looking at black people saying simply because of the color of your skin, you're defective, um, you know, you're, you're less than me, I'm superior to you. <clears throat> and it only has to do with the color of your skin. That has been completely reversed today um, and turned back on white people and, um, and everything like that, so that now, simply by being white, you're racist. Simply by being white, you're an oppressor. Simply by being white, you participate in white supremacy in a system that puts people of color down and elevates um, people of lighter skin. So it's, bare, it's inherently causing people to bear false witness against their neighbor, and it is encouraging coveting. Because it says, remember, keep the, the, the balance here, anybody who has more of any kind in any way well, you have a right to that if you don't have it. And it's teaching people to desire what God has not given and say, no, I have a right to 
to what God has given you, you need to share that with me. And if you don't share it with me, you're being unjust. See, this is where this comes in. That's where Keller goes. That's where a lot of these people go. It's an issue of justice. If you don't share, and I demand that you do, your excess with me, you're being unjust and you're compromising the gospel. Um, this is where it goes. Can, can I, so this is, one of the reasons this is so important is there is racism that still exists, mm -hmm. and there are real white supremacists that still exist. And this <coughs> critical race theory actually clouds the issue so much that it's actually hard to talk about real racism and condemn real racism because everything, when everything's racism, nothing is racism, right? So what we need to do is, we, I really do think that right now, we as a church, but also as a nation, we need to be able to address critical race theory and to just obliterate this false narrative, just get rid of it so that we can talk about real race issues. In other words, it, it is very hard to talk about actual racism. Like, just, just, just as no one thinks that we're, there's a certain callousness in what we're saying. I mean, I, I grew up going to a friend's house here uh, in, in Bogart, right out, not far from here. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would go spend the night there on the weekends, and I was best friends with, with their two sons, uh, David and Edward Lane, and uh, we love these guys. So we come to find out that we ride our bikes up and down the road, and come to find out as I get a little older that the last major lynching in American history took place right there at Mooresford Bridge, which is right down the street from where I used to hang out on the weekends. So I remember going down to Mooresford Bridge, and we actually stood there and looked at it, and then we read the history of it, and you know, it, it, back in, I, I don't, I'm going to get the decade wrong, it may have been the 40s, or I don't remember the decade, but there was an African-American couple who had gotten into a tiny little disagreement with a white landowner, and then the man was there with his pregnant wife, and they were making their way back over Mooresford Bridge, which was a much smaller bridge at the time, and 10 or 12 uh, white men came out with shotguns and uh, various rifles and weapons. They shot this pregnant woman so many times, killing her and her unborn child. Her body was completely disfigured by the, the gunshots, and then the man was also shot and killed. They, I don't remember the, the numbers, like 50 plus times or whatever they were shot. And the, the white men get away with it. And to my knowledge, they were, no one was ever caught and no one was ever officially uh, incriminated from what happened. Now, that happened within, you know, when I was there in the 90s spending the night at that house, some of the people who committed those crimes, their kids were probably still some of them living in the area. I mean, this is not far away from horrific evil that has taken place in our country against African Americans. That is very recent, okay? So, we want to condemn that with all that we have. We want to say we are equal as human beings. We are equal in creation in the image of God. We are equal in our sin and our condemnation, and we are equal in our redemption in Jesus, no matter what our ethnicity is. And there are some real horrible evils in the past in our country that have been perpetrated largely by the white population against the black population, of course with slavery and then Jim Crow and on and on it goes. This is an, this is an evil thing that, that we, we are so grateful there has been so much change and a lot of progress and a lot of, a lot of change in that area. But I believe that critical race theory is actually hurting the real conversation about race. I think that what's happening is everything's being called racism. All white people are being condemned as white supremacists, whether they know it or not, because they're in a white privilege system that is constantly benefiting them at the expense of minority groups. And I think that that narrative is really shutting down the real race conversation. And I think that once we can expose this false narrative, whatever racism is left, and I'm sure there are varying degrees of pride and sin and all kinds of issues, and there's probably degrees of racism that, that we struggle with in different ways, whoever you may be listening, we, we, there might be degrees of that. We want to peel away this false narrative, throw it out the window, not believe it at all, so that we can deal with any real racism that might really be there. If there is real racism at all in my heart, I want to repent of it. I want the cross to put it to death. I want to turn away from it. I want to reconcile if there's any kind of issue there. But until this narrative is blown up and absolutely seen and exposed, I don't think we're going to make progress. And it, I don't know what you think. I think in the last 10 years, there's been regress on this issue. I don't think we're making an advance. I think CRT is making it far more uh, polarizing, far more, there's far more anger. You've got all the riots and protests and there's death in the streets and there's people walking around with AR-15s and shooting each other. I mean, th this is not the direction we want to go. And this is CRT. Critical race theory is why you have a violent riot in the street. I, I, now, there is a place for a kind of peaceful protest if you believe that there has been an injustice that we could talk about that. But in terms of a violent response and the way that things have been handled in the last year, this is not in any way helping resolve the tension. This is 
not in any way bringing about any kind of repentance. This is not bringing about humility. This is not bringing about reconciliation. This is doing nothing but turning the volume up to a crackling fever pitch and creating more tension than there probably was before. So, I, I think CRT is actually going to be the enemy right now to racial reconciliation. I know that sounds strange. People think it's the Savior. I think it is the enemy. We've got to get rid of CRT, and we've got to see race from biblical lenses and then work on reconciliation within a gospel framework before there's going to be any success, I think, in this issue. I mean, even Vody Bauckham has, has said that. Like, it's like we, the, the best way to do this is just build relationships with people. Um, build relationships with people who look different than you. Get to know them. Let them get to know you. But, you know, and it, and it goes both ways. Be ready for your assumptions and presuppositions about them to be shattered as you get to know them. Um, we shouldn't presuppose because they have a different skin color anything about them, just like they shouldn't do the same to us. We get to know people as people, get to learn their background, their story, and that's huge. Like that's, that's where the, the, what Mark was talking about, you know, where the rubber meets the road is when you just get to know people. And, and build relationships with people. I mean, that's what Vody said is going to be the key to this. And I think he's right. Um, I mean, because, you know, Vody Balkum is very conservative. He's, you know, he pushes back against, you know, critical race theory, but he has shared stories from, <clears throat> from his own past um, where he has experienced the, the racism that, that has been perpetrated against <clears throat> African-Americans. I think it was, he was telling a story about um, he was with uh, a friend or cousin and his uncle, his uncle had served in the military and they're just driving down the road. They get pulled over. His uncle gets put on the ground, put in handcuffs. Didn't do anything wrong. Like, did nothing wrong. And his uncle's like, you know, I didn't serve for this to happen. Um, and Vody's like, you know, you have one of two ways that you can respond to that. You can let bitterness corrupt you and eat you up to where you hate police officers, you hate white people, or you can recognize that there's, there's, they're lingering things that we've got to deal with, um, but there's hope in the gospel. We can forgive. We can move past this. And the problem with critical race theory and the social justice is it yeah. doesn't have an ending point. There's no, there's no termination point. You say, okay, we've, we, we've come to a, a place where we can move on. Like you, there, you hear about the stain of racism that never goes away. And it's like, well, I thought the gospel said that sin was completely washed away. I mean, what did God say in, in the Old Testament to his people? You know, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. The, the blood of Jesus cleanses every stain. Um, and so I think that's one of the big things Vody would say. And many of the, you know, many of the folks pushing back against this, it's like, yeah, there, racism was terrible. And, you know, there's things we probably still need to, to work out in our own relationships, our own our own, our own lives, but we do it through the cross. The, the cross shows <clears throat> that we can be reconciled to God and therefore we can be reconciled to one another. And this is something that has stuck with me. I don't remember where I heard this, where I got it from. Um, but one of the problems is, is we're starting to elevate human sin um, against humans against, over our sin against God. I mean, you think about this. There is nothing worse in the universe than our sin against God. Um, like it is the ultimate evil, as R.C. Sproul said, it's cosmic treason. Um, nothing that any of you ever do against me will ever compare to the weight and the wickedness of my sin against God. If everybody in here did me wrong for a hundred years, that is a thimble full of evil compared to an ocean of my own evil against God. And in the cross, he has completely forgiven everyone who believes. Completely forgiven. Not mostly forgiven, not partly forgiven, completely forgiven. And so if God in Jesus can forgive each one of us that ocean of sin that we were hopeless to do anything about, then how dare we say that human sin against one another can't reach a resolution point, that it can't be overcome, that it can't reach a point where we can say, okay, in light of what Jesus has done, he paid for that. I can forgive you. I can say, let's move on with this. CRT, social justice, does not allow for the cross to be the cross. And that is probably one of the greatest offenses um, that it has. Um, I want to go to one other text because this is something else. Uh, I know we're about out of time, but I think we have time to read this real quick. Luke chapter 19. We've got a whole lot of text here, a whole lot we could look at. And um, I'm sorry, we don't have more time to do it. Uh, Luke chapter 19. This is the story of the conversion 
of Zacchaeus. <clears throat> and this actually plays into what we were just talking about, about the cross being sufficient. Um, one of the things that comes out of this is, well, since there's still a stain, you in this generation need to uh, make reparations for what previous generations have done. You need to make up, you need to pay back um, the sin of your ancestors that were committed against other people, um, their ancestors. And they will say, well, you know, the Bible teaches clearly uh, this theory of reparations. If you, you know, again, you share in their sin, therefore you have to pay back what your ancestors did. But let, and this is one of the texts they go to. This is one of the key texts they will use is Luke 19. But let's see what happens here. It says, He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. He was short. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And so what's important to look at here? is, yeah, Zacchaeus made restitution for sin. He did. But he made restitution for his own sin against people that he committed in his lifetime. Okay? It is doing an injustice to the text to say, well, this means if your ancestors did something wrong, you have to pay back what they did wrong to the ancestors of the people they wronged. That's not in this text at all. That's a classic case of what we call eisegesis, taking an idea and reading it into the Bible when it's not there already. Um, and so one, one last example. Like I said, I wish there was more. But yeah, if we have personally wronged somebody, we should seek to make that right. I mean, obviously there can be forgiveness. There, there is forgiveness, and that's the most important part. But if we have the means to, to serve someone that we have in some way robbed or, or benefited from wrongly, it's, it's okay to, to say, well, I can give of this excess back to them because that's the right thing to do. That's what Zacchaeus did. He's like, I, I, you know, not, and not only was it, I'm just going to give back. I'm going to give up to half my goods. Um, and if I've, if I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to restore it fourfold. And it wasn't that he thought he was earning God's favor, he just simply realized, I did wrong to some people and I'm gonna do my best to, to, to make it right. But he didn't do it for another tax collector because there was a lot of Jewish tax collectors. He didn't do it for them. <clears throat> and he didn't do it for previous Jewish tax collectors either. He could only make up for what he himself had done. And so again, social justice, it inverts the gospel. It confuses the gospel, critical race theory, it, it adds all kinds of different ways of viewing people and realities that are just completely contrary to Scripture. And once we bring these in, like it's like you said last week, it's like there's a gravitational pull. We think, oh, just one, if I just let one of these things in, it's not going to be bad. But before you know it, it's like, it's, it's almost like a gateway drug kind of thing, like marijuana. You know, so many people, they don't just stop with marijuana. They start there but then that doesn't do enough and you got to do more and you keep getting further and further in. Same kind of thing with this. We have to resist it at the outset and not let any of these ideas in because it's like leaven in bread. It will get everywhere and it will affect everything eventually. That's why we say not everybody who's pushing this is at the point of absolute heresy and apostasy, but because of the things they're believing and they're saying and the ideas they've adopted, They've set themselves on a road to that, whether they realize it or not. And by God's grace, the vast majority will be inconsistent with the bad stuff they've brought in. But that still doesn't make it okay. Yeah, Any final on, thoughts? On this point, if you want to just have a little bit of a good, <coughs> a good read on this, if you Google probably Kevin DeYoung Reparations Review. Mm -hmm. So a book just came out recently by two evangelical authors called Reparations. They are arguing for the kind of reparations we're critiquing here. And the book is 
probably going to be somewhat popular. Kevin DeYoung did a great review on the Gospel Coalition, ironically. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, if you go on there, Kevin DeYoung, Reparations, read his review. It is, he, he, they talk about the Nicodemus story, and he, he has a great crit criticism of, of how the Scripture's been, been uh, tweaked in a pretty bad way on, on that uh, topic. Yeah, so I, I, since it's about time for us to finish, the one thing, um, the one thing we can say is if, if we can charge, you know, leave any kind of final charge, is love the gospel the way the Bible presents the gospel to you. Get as thoroughly acquainted with the gospel of grace as you can get. You know, we use these phrases, you know, we're made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Like that's not just, you know, out of the Reformation from Luther, Calvin, and all of them. That is a reflection of what Scripture itself teaches. Um, get as familiar with that and those nuances as you can. Get as familiar as you can be with Jesus and his sufficiency, with the sufficiency of the grace of God and how we don't contribute to our salvation, we don't contribute to our righteousness. Get as familiar as you can get with those things from Scripture and you will be equipping yourself to push back against what the culture is bringing in, even if you can't name all the different terms that they have for it. Because was it Neil Shinvey has done a lot of this, and I don't even see how Excellent. this man does it. Like there are so many books and articles and, and conferences and symposiums and podcasts, <coughs> excuse me, pushing this stuff. Um, it's New Discourses, which is not a Christian thing, but they've got a list of all the, the, the social justice terminology, and there's hundreds of terms, and even, and in, in, in they're like, it, it's adding to it every day. Like the list just keeps getting better. You don't have to know all of that. But if you know the gospel well, and you know, like Paul said, um, if anyone um, preaches a different gospel, know the gospel well enough so that when a different gospel comes in, you can recognize it. And you can say, I might not be able to pinpoint every single nuance as to why this is wrong, but I know what the gospel is and this isn't it. Okay? Like get there at the very least so that you're not led astray, so that you're not overcome by this. Um, and I think that's Part of the problem is we made a big deal about, oh, we're recovering the gospel, we're recovering the gospel, but we lost the gospel in the midst of the recovery because everything became a gospel issue. Everything was gospel this, gospel that, gospel this, gospel that, and somewhere along the way, we forgot what the gospel actually is about. So if we keep the gospel, when we talk about being gospel-centered, this is what we're talking about. Keep the gospel, as the Bible speaks the gospel, keep that central, because if we truly keep that central, then we have, we have, um, we have shielded ourselves in all the best ways against heresy and bad teaching like this. Any final thoughts? No, that's great. Can you pray uh, for us, Greg? Yeah, I will. Let's pray. God, Lord, there's, there's so much we could say, so much we could look at. And um, Lord, I, I trust and pray that, Lord, what we've looked at these past two weeks in reference to critical race theory, intersectionality, social justice, um, Lord, that, that all that we've looked at will prove beneficial. Lord, that it will start even if we don't remember it all, that it'll start a, a, a process of thinking in our hearts and our minds, Lord, that leads us to, to dig deeper into your word and to know your word better, God, so that, that we, we're not easily led astray. Um, and Lord, I, I do pray for people like Tim Keller, Jarvis Williams, um, Dottie Lewis, uh, Eric Mason, um, and, and others. God, I pray, Lord, we pray that you would <coughs> open their eyes to see the error that they have been embracing. Um, Lord, that they, they are changing the very gospel that they have been saying that they have been upholding. God, open their eyes to see. You say in 2 Timothy to, to correct opponents with gentleness and respect because you might grant repentance. And God, we pray that you would grant repentance to, to these men and many others who have bought into this and have been drinking of these ideas and have been influenced by them. God, I pray for our church, Lord, that we would stand strong against, uh, against these things that are, that are in our culture and that are coming into the church, trying to come in. Lord, help us be gracious. Help us be kind. Um, Lord, help us have the compassion of Christ flowing out of us, Lord, overflowing. But Lord, help us be unyielding and unbending when it comes to the truth. Lord, may we have no tolerance, no space for any false idea or any false um, gospel, any addition to the gospel. Lord, may we have no space and may we make no allowance for it. God, help us to be that way. 
uh, Lord, and may the true gospel, the, the gospel of the scriptures, which is a beautiful message of how sinful people are made right with you. God, may that gospel lay hold of us more and more every day and shape us and mold us. And Lord, may we be free and generous in sharing that gospel undiluted, um, uncorrupted uh, with those around us. Uh, Lord, may you multiply <coughs> everything that we've said that is good and true uh, for your glory and our conformity to Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just uh, before uh, we stop here, uh, the next two weeks uh, we plan to talk about the sexual revolution. This is the LGBTQ plus uh, agenda. And so, uh, a lot to talk about there. So, there's going to be some similarities, but we're going to shift topics there. And I, I just remember asking my seniors last semester, uh, what, what's the number one reason your friends that you know who are walking away from the faith, what's the number one reason they're walking away from the faith? Every kid in my class said LGBT, number one. I'm at youth group the other night, and this kid is wondering about whether that's true, whether the Bible's true, and I'm talking to this other kid at Jittery Joe's, and they're wondering if it's true. And I mean, just the the issue of the day, especially for younger people, is LGBT issues and the Bible, biblical authority, how are we to make sense out of this? So we want to talk about some of the background of how the the culture got to where it is, to where it seems relatively normal for a 45-year-old man to say, I was born with a, I'm a woman born in a man's body. How did we get to a place where that actually seems to sort of just be, yeah, okay. Like people just, yeah, that makes sense. How do we get there? So we'll talk a little bit about the development of thought, how we got to where we are on the sexual issues. And then we want to talk about, and I really want to be thorough, what does the Bible really teach on that topic? Because there's a lot of people who say, well, the Greek word doesn't really mean that, and they've mistranslated this. And that. So we want, we want to go through all the text in the Scripture uh, on the topic, and uh, over the next two weeks we plan to do that. So thank you guys very much, and grab some some La Perea on your your way out. You guys can stay and talk and, and whatever you want to do. Thank you.